Sam has never seen that movie, but <laughs> it's I should he host, not be he host a baseball podcast to host this program having not seen that movie. Do you, do you know it's written by a former Baltimore Oriole? Yeah, I, there's there's a series of reasons why I've been trying that... to sit him down and make oh, him watch boy. this. Wow, oh, I feel like this interview needs to be about something else now. <laughs> we'll, we'll, I'll bring it back, but that's uh, you should. I'm going to send you the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at BaltimoreSportsReport.com. You are listening to Baltimoreans, the home of the all-weather fan. My name is Sam Dingman. This is Alan Smith. Let's get stupid. Baltimoreans. Hello, Baltimoreans. How are y'all doing? We're going to get particularly stupid this week, so buckle up. <laughs> Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 92 of Baltimoreans, the show that strives each week to offer you coherent, thoughtful analysis of baseball and American culture, but often comes out sounding more like this. Nonetheless, we've got a fantastic show on tap for you this evening, folks. And when I say fantastic, I mean... It's like riding a wave. Sometimes I'm on, sometimes I'm off. And I want to take as many people with me as I possibly can, because the feeling is amazing. In just a little bit, we'll be joined in studio by Patrick Lillis, the artistic director of the Farm Theater, which is a theater production and education organization modeled on the Major League Baseball farm system. We'll talk to Patrick about his efforts to combine his passion for theater and baseball into something that celebrates both of them. We'll also bring you our latest seventh inning sketch. As regular listeners to this program are aware, Alan, while a certifiable Baltimorean, doesn't so much think of himself as a full-blown baseball fan, particularly due to the fact that certain facets of the game still feel a bit foreign to him. He's still not totally sold on sabermetrics, for example. True. And he's a bit skeptical of the platoon advantage as a strategic tactic. Extremely skeptical. Though in his defense, that's largely because the Orioles, until very recently, were also skeptical. (laughs) He's also not totally sold on the appeal of this shadowy fringe collective known as the National League. Don't buy it. Don't buy it at all. Or at least he wasn't. Until we recorded the segment you'll hear at the end of tonight's show, in which a handful of senior circuit teams will compete live on the air for his affections. Of course... No episode of Baltimoreans would be complete without our most popular recurring segment, the Randy Milligan Franchise Report. Milligan was my second favorite Oriole after Cal growing up. Really? Oh, yeah. And when I was younger, I didn't possess the sophistication to appreciate much beyond his pleasantly rhythmic name, his dapper pencil-thin mustache, (laughs) and the fact that he was the only thing remotely resembling an offensive threat behind Cal Ripken in the Oriole lineup for several seasons. But did you know, Baltimoreans, that in five full seasons with the Orioles, Randy Milligan's lowest on-base percentage was 373? Holy cow. Or that in two of those seasons, he actually walked more often than he struck out? Pujolsian. Or that his 106 walks in 1992 is the highest single-season total for anyone on the team since Eddie Murray in 1984? Milligan didn't have a lot of folks to drive him in once he got on base back in those days. But imagine the potential of someone with that kind of plate discipline in this year's lineup. Oh, oh, what's that you say? Chris Davis is currently on pace for 88 walks? 
and the presence of Nelson Cruz means there's less pressure on Davis to be the only source of elite power production. So there's no reason to be freaked out by his low home run total out of the gate, especially given the fact that he appears to have been nursing an oblique injury. Cool. That's awesome. Maybe if Davis puts a little more Milligan in his game in 2014, people will start to appreciate the Randy man a bit more and will no longer be forced to pause each week to honor his proud legacy. What a tenuously teetering tower of tomfoolery we've teed up here in the opening tease. Episode 92. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, if episode 92 was a game of Jenga, I wouldn't want it to be my turn right now. Especially since Jenga is best played in the company of good friends, and friends don't let friends who also happen to be Orioles fans waste their time on silly <laughs> games when they could instead be enjoying one of our fine sister-wife podcasts here on the Baltimore Sports Report Network. However, if you're listening to this show, you probably don't have any friends. <laughs> and that's okay, because you're about to make one in the form of my esteemed colleague, Alan Smith. I'm not sure that the following is going to make you consider me a friend uh, as much as a frenemy, but here we go. Because 92, episode 92, is a particularly long episode. Or it's a particularly long number. It is, in fact, the longest, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. Because Taumata Wakatanga Hangao Kawa Uta Mateo Rahuri Aturikipi Pakuku Pakamanga Harana Kapataki Wanu Katanga Tahawa, at 92 characters, is the longest proper noun in an English-speaking country. It is, in fact, a hill in northern New Zealand. The name is often shortened to Tamatea, so that you don't need to spend a day giving anyone directions. Roughly speaking, Taumata Wahaka Tahangi Kahangahau Kahawa Utaumateo Rahaya Aturi Pakaka Pekamangu Harana Kapakai Huano Katana Tahoa translates into the hill of the flute playing by Tamateo who was blown hither from afar, had a split penis, grazed his knees climbing the mountains, fell on the earth and encircled the land to his beloved. Which sounds an awful lot like a sentence that we'd write right here on Baltimoreans. To give you a little bit of context, the full version of this 305 meter tall hill is actually longer than the entire healthy Orioles lineup put together. Marcakis, Machado, Jones, Davis, Cruz, Weeders, Hardy, Scope, Low, Tillman, Showalter is only 68 total characters. We could probably list the players available on the bench too and only begin to get to 92 characters long. However, the name of this hill is not as long as a word that we've coined right here in Hootenanny Studios in the last week, which we've adopted some a little bit from the original German. With any luck, we can get the following into popular lexicon. Neitschlonger being accepted upon of ein management structure was loosen, horrible-rashisht wie Donald Sterling, so besmirch nicht on das team, sud also basketball, and von Erdwitting das professional ownership model was manchen rich Meinschaften over das much bitter. German is such a beautiful language. Uh, I'm sorry, Alan, the, the recording cut out when you said the word. I'm going to need you to say it again. <laughs> That's not possible. <laughs> Thank you.
Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Randy Milligan Franchise Report, where each week we take the three most relevant news items from Birdland and beyond and assign them an objective quality score. First up this week is, well, apparently about the same as last week, Sam. One week later, we're still at 500. We are still directly behind the Yankees in the American League East, still nursing a dangerous addiction to falling behind in the early innings. Sam, what ranking would you give to the Orioles here in week number five? I would give them a ranking of the infrastructural refresh of Angel Stadium of Anaheim, (laughs) which happened a few years ago, where they didn't rebuild the stadium from scratch. Sure. They just kind of gave it a little bit of a facelift. Okay. And that's sort of what happened with the Orioles this past offseason. And yet here we are. Yeah. And we cannot get a starting pitcher to throw six innings. You know what I was thinking about today, Smith? How many times have you seen Evan Meek pitch this season? Oof, so way many. too many times. So his last name is no longer appropriate. <laughs> he's out there every night. Meekaboo. <laughs> Ever since TJ McFarland came up, he's out there every night. Now, I'm yep. not saying these guys need to be throwing complete games every night, but we can bring in all the Nelson Cruz reclamation projects we want we can have Chris Davis hitting 260. We can have him hitting 320. If we don't get this starting pitching thing figured out, it's never going to change. I'm going to give it a uh, successful drag bunt. The David Lowe bottom of the order successful drag bunt uh, for the first hit of the entire game. Because I think that we are, um, we, are, we are hacking away here in a not particularly impressive or magnificent way. I totally agree with you about the pitchers. This has just been an inconsistent team. But we need to do something to, to get that feeling going. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reference a conversation that we're going to have a little bit later and drop a basketball reference on you here. Um, Steph Curry of the Golden State Warriors is the best shooter in the NBA right now. Uh, and when he gets going, he is disgusting. He can shoot it from anywhere at any point. But I feel like he gets into these slumps where he just needs to see the ball go through the basket once. And once he gets that going, he's on fire and he can just, you know, he's amazing. But other teams know that. And they will do whatever it takes to keep him from seeing the ball go through the hoop. Even if that means, like, after the whistle is blown, intentionally goaltending, just so he doesn't get to see that muscle thing and have that going. The Orioles just have got to start getting in a situation where they establish some positive reps. And I think it's just been bumpy. It's been up and down. It's been back and forth. But I think that, you know, with Manny coming back, and I think that there's some consistency, if we start to get some consistency in who we're running out in these orders, and we start to get people healthy, we may be able to start running off these four, five, six game win streaks that, and winning some, sweeping some series that could really help this whole process get going. And you know, that's an interesting point that you make about a lack of consistency in the batting order and pitching rotation because in many ways the hallmark of the Orioles teams of 2012 and 13 has been the roster moves the number of different guys who started a game the number of call-ups and send downs the taxi squad that we've talked about a million times the team (laughs) Steveness of the Orioles has been a key to their success but I think what you say is also true it has also been in some ways I think a hindrance because I don't want to I don't want to sit here and doubt the good energy that the Orioles core players have because I think it's been well documented that this team uh, is really rock solid when it comes to morale and camaraderie. At the same time, it's very hard to keep that going when the inconsistency is so consistent. 
Item number two on this week's Randy Milligan franchise report concerns the ominous storm cloud that has overshadowed the joy tulips of Manny Machado's <laughs> triumphant return. Specifically, Chris Davis's oblique injury. He is currently on the 15-day DL, but as we know from Wei Yin Chen's struggle with a similar problem last year, it may be as many as six to eight weeks before we see him back on the field. Smith, what are we talking about here? I'm really worried about this. Um, I think that, uh, well, I, first of all, I would like to uh, offer a hat tip to the Bird's Eye View folks for their fantastic musical number tackling this very issue on last night's show. Um, <laughs> if you haven't gone and heard the No Doubt uh, song sung to the words oblique instead of don't speak, you should go do that immediately. Um, I'm going to give this ranking a um alexi casilla layout into nick marcakis's knee oh god um it's not as bad as what else happened in that game because that's the same game where machado yep. tore up his knee and i think we all forget how bad that was because the of september the massacre i've come to call it <laughs> yeah because the game was so bad in so many other ways uh, i think we also lost on a walk-off home run in the bottom of the ninth if i remember correctly I, something um, like that yeah to i think statistically eliminated us from the playoffs it was as bad as it gets dark day <laughs> um but you know i think this is a big deal when you're someone with chris davis's uh, motion and how how much he swings and how much he you know got his confidence up and he was sort of feeling like he belonged in his body and belonged in the space on the field i'm worried about him uh and i'm worried about his psyche to bounce back from this and come back to being the crash davis that we all love okay I'm going to introduce a a glimmer of optimism. Crush Davis that we all love. <laughs> Crash Davis is a Bull Durham reference, and I apologize for making it. No, you shouldn't apologize. <clears throat> you shouldn't apologize, because I think that's a parallel that was drawn a number of times last year. I'm uh, Not having seen Bull Durham, oops, no longer oh, qualified God, to host a baseball not podcast. Not qualified at all. I don't really understand the connection, <laughs> except that the wor- the letters are similar. Yeah, that's true. Um the, the note of optimism that I would like to introduce as a bit of a counter to what you've just said is, okay. uh, I, while this is bad, I don't think it's, it has the potential to not be that bad. So I'm going to give it a strikeout, but it's a strikeout against Jordano Ventura, which okay. is to say, no one can really blame you for striking out. <laughs> sure. And it's not the kind of strikeout where you spike your helmet afterwards. It's one where you just sort of walk back to the dugout, shake your, your hat, head. Tip your hat, walk back, walk away. Okay. Uh, because this is the thing. I have been uh, harping on this since the beginning of the season, and I'm going to continue to do it. I really like the approach at the plate that Chris Davis has shown so far this season. Yes. I like the patience. Yes. I like the fact that he is not swinging at pitches that he knows he can't drive. Um, I think what's interesting about this oblique injury is that it perhaps offers a bit more context on the lack of power that we've been seeing Um and maybe we that maybe we didn't know was there before, which is to say the pitches that Chris Davis was swinging at were pitches that were right over the heart of the plate that he could really, really lay into and that he did last year. I think it's very possible that he's been nursing this oblique injury for longer than we realized or maybe ah. even longer than he realized. And that's the reason that he hasn't been able to catch up to those pitches quite as much this year. And I think, you know, if you've watched any games, I think the reality of watching him bears this out. We've seen him foul a lot of those pitches straight back or just miss them. 
uh, in situations where he probably would have driven them last year. What he hasn't been doing is swinging at that pitch down and in that locked him up last year, right. swinging at that pitch up and away that locked him up last year. So I think if he can come back from this injury, hopefully within a reasonable amount of time, continue to show the improved plate discipline that we've seen, but now be able to catch up with those pitches that he's been fouling off that are in his sweet spot, I think we may get back an even better Chris Davis than we saw last year. I don't. I know that sounds pretty pie in the sky, but I don't think it's that much outside the realm of possibility. I just, I just want to see that lineup. I've been promised <laughs> this lineup that's so exciting, and that I, you know, that I, that I mentioned in my introduction. It's just such a great potential thing, and I would like to see it once this season. You will. That's all that I ask. You will. I'm here to groundlessly promise you. <laughs> that you will see that lineup. Great. And item number three on the report this week is the news story that it almost feels like we willed into existence specifically so that we could discuss it on our show. Last Saturday, Los Angeles Clippers owner Donald Sterling made some seriously backward-ass comments about black people to his girlfriend, who happens to be both black and Latino, saying, among other things, that he didn't want her bringing black people to Clippers games and name-checked NBA legend Magic Johnson, of all people. You all know the explosion of outrage and on-court protests that followed, and today NBA Commissioner Adam Silver dropped the hammer, announcing that Sterling is banned from the NBA for life, leveling a $2.5 million fine, and saying that the league will seek to force him to sell the team. There is just an absurd amount to process here, and for once, Sam and I have decided to be aware of our own limitations as podcast hosts. So we brought in fellow Baltimore Sports Report Network host and, surprise, actual Clippers fan, Charlie Hoppus, to help us make sense of all that is going on. Good evening, Charles. What is your ranking of the, the, the ruling that Commissioner Silver passed down to David Sterling today? Well, I mean, I, I'm sure that the ranking of the ruling is probably a Blake Griffin posterization of Kendrick Perkins. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's it's... It's a no-brainer, but even even so, a lot of people around the league were really surprised that a brand new rookie commissioner, sort of doing his really his first big thing, yeah. uh, was able to sort of bring the pain as, as he did <laughs> uh, to Donald Sterling, and and as he should have. Uh, I think that probably Sterling's comments are. Uh, Sean Livingston blown out knee while going for a layup. If, uh, <laughs> if, if there are any Clippers fans, <laughs> it's a really sad, sad analogy. Um, yeah, self-inflicted wound, man. <laughs> I just, I just like to state for the record that I'm chuckling at the things Charlie is saying, but I don't know what any of them mean. <laughs> uh, just, just Google search Sean Livingston knee. Don't do and that. understand don't that he do was that our. Eating. <laughs> he, he understand that he was our best hope at a time. Um, <laughs> I mean, what a complete ass. And you notice that none of the pundits, none of the players, none of the fellow owners have said the word surprised or shocked. Right. And that's really the main the main problem is this guy. It, it's not one of those things where it's like, oh, this is a real shame that this happened. And I'm glad that we're reacting to it. It's a good thing this happened because this guy has always been an overt racist. Right. 
33 years since he's <laughs> been doing this sort of thing. Can I can I just chime in really quick because that that dovetails with something I wanted to say about this that I feel like also isn't being talked about and if it is I, I may have just missed it and in which case I apologize. But there's a lot of people who are saying like, "Well, you know, yeah, what he said is bad, but people have the right to freedom of speech." That's oh true. But listen, it's not like the NSA was surveilling his conversations <laughs> and intervened and decided to infringe on his rights. His girlfriend tape recorded a conversation that that the two of them were having now there's a lot of reasons that she could have done that but the first one that springs to mind is for me is that he says repugnant shit like this all the time to the point where she was like you know one day i'm gonna record you doing this (laughs) and she finally did also it turns out that there's no constitutional right to own an nba franchise there's a constitutional (laughs) right to say whatever you like but there's no constitutional right that says you get to continue to own a basketball team and here's something great that that new commissioner Nate Silver said. Somebody asked him, <laughs> Nate Silver, <laughs> if uh, only no. Charlie, if only absolutely, Nate Silver were a commissioner. I absolutely believe, not Nate Silver. I believe Adam. you. Silver. <laughs> you you've confused the commissioner of the NBA with the commissioner of my heart. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that Nate Silver will have some statistics based on the work the, uh, the 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 speech that uh, Adam Silver gave today. Uh, he took he took uh, a, he took questions after his press conference. Yeah, and seemed so royally pissed off. Yeah, uh, which was awesome. It was, uh, and and somebody tried to sort of bait him into the First Amendment uh, amendment discussion uh, or defense or whatever, and and his response about you know oh you know who knows how we acquired you know these this this recording. His response was, whether or not these remarks were initially shared in private, they're now public and they represent his views. So can I ask you, Charlie, in the interim, right? So this stuff all sort of crested on Saturday and Sunday. Um, the, the Clippers are in a very tight series against the Warriors, um, and they really kind of showed up flat in their first game after this information came out, but before Silver dropped the hammer. Um what was your feeling as a Clippers fan watching all this stuff? Were you moved to not watch the game? Did you think about burning your Clippers jersey and putting it on the internet? How did you react as a fan to this sort of weird bifurcation of loyalty thing? Well, and I think that's a great question, and it's something... <laughs> whenever whenever Orioles fans complain about Peter Angelos... And, and, and I'm an <laughs> Orioles fan who complains about Peter Angelos. Here are my other teams... The Redskins and the Clippers. Oh, oh boy! God. So, so you I, I sort of, you know, I sort of smirk because, <laughs> yeah, Peter Angelos is a pretty terrible owner, but he's not overtly, a ruthless douchebag, <laughs> overtly evil or completely tone deaf. He you know? turns out like, to be kind of a good dude, actually. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, he's pretty okay in terms of the. He's going to get to St. Peter and grade out well, <laughs> and hopefully, well, never mind. At any rate, um, <laughs> settle, settle. <laughs> at any rate, um, I I was upset as a human being about Donald Sterling and what he said, and outraged, and and so on and so on. As a Clippers fan, I was very thankful that Doc Rivers is our coach because if anybody is going to both handle that situation with grace and authority, 
Doc Rivers will, and if anyone on the other side is going to then coach our players um, and get them focused and ready, it's Doc Rivers and, and a court leader like Chris Paul. So um, I think that's something that's getting a little bit confused, or, and it's, it makes sense that it is, is things like uh, Golden State coach Mark Jackson and uh, Keith Oberman suggested people boycott the Clippers game. I, I, I understand where that sentiment is coming from. But at the same time, the NBA is a uh, profit-sharing organization. You have to boycott every NBA game. Yeah. Or else money's going into Donald Sterling's pocket. Yep. Okay, Charlie, uh, we're going to let you go and get back to the regularly scheduled programming here. Thank you so much for jumping on with us. Uh, Game 5 is tonight, back in L.A. What do you like? Who's going to win? And uh, how how do you like the Clippers' chances going forward? Game 5 is usually pivotal in these NBA series if it's tied 2-2. Um, I'm not sure that the Clippers will take this game, but I just think that they're so much more talented than Golden State that yeah, they'll take the series. Uh, probably, I'd say, Clippers in seven. All right. Everybody, of course, if you don't already know, make sure to check out the Orioles Spastics, of which Charlie is one. It is the internet and indeed the world's only Arrested Development-themed Orioles podcast. <laughs> and as I tell all of my friends when recommending it to them, it works shockingly well (laughs) (laughs) thanks as always charlie we always love having you on thanks for having me guys well i'm going to give this ranking in terms of adam silver's handling of the situation a home run goodbye home run because uh i do think that it is a very necessary thing um it is it excises the problem very well and i think that only adam silver and a collection of other sports owners have the ability to come down on donald sterling as hard as he needed to be come down on um however i am a little bit disappointed by how the entire discussion has happened because i do think that more people could have stood up more places along the way and said something um you know, I think we have a long tradition of sports and sports protest, especially in sports games, being a very important thing. Um, you think about the 1968 Olympics and that iconic image of someone holding up the the fist on the top of the medal stand in the Mexican Olympics. Um, you think of all, all of these things which in which sports, because they capture the moment and the, the vision of people, um, are, are so important. In so many different ways. And I think that uh, to repudiate someone like Donald Sterling needed to be complete and it needed to be across the board. And I really appreciate that the Clippers did that thing where they all came out in the first game and they turned their Clippers gear inside out. And I think that that was a little bit of like, look, we're still a team and we're standing up against this by saying that we're not the Clippers, we're our own unit and we're playing for each other and not for the man who pays the bills. And I think that that's very important. What I would have liked to see them do and what I have liked to see Golden State do, and frankly, what I have liked, to, I would have liked to have seen everyone else in the NBA do, is take the first minute off, start the game, opening tip, just sit there and dribble the ball for a full minute of nationally televised time. It's when advertisers are paying the most money to be advertising. It's when the the, the game is at its most important. I feel like that is the time to make a statement, which is, this is not acceptable. Then you can still play the other 47 minutes as hard as you want. The game is still going to be tight and interesting and competitive. And what you would have done in that moment is, I think, stood more with a collection of people who have a tradition of turning sports into a social justice movement, which I think is incredibly, incredibly important. Well, 
um, I guess, uh, I, I mean, I think you've and Charlie have really f- captured the implications of, of what he did really well. Um, I guess the thing that I really want to focus on is the league's response. Um, and the ranking that I would like to give the league's response is the removal of a tarp from a baseball field <laughs> following a rain delay, which Love is it. always Love a it. moment of great hope. Yep. Um, so the thing that gives me hope about this, Smith, is that I feel like it is a rare thing in America to have something as terrible and repugnant as this happen on the national stage, to have such an immense public outcry, to have there be such a clear sense in the vast majority of people that this is something that is wrong and that must be corrected instantly. And then to have the person in a position of authority take action instantly and do exactly what that that vast majority feels should be done. That really doesn't happen very often. Nope. It is very rare that we as citizens of this country have our hearts ripped open like this and are given what we feel we deserve as resolution. And I know that the National Basketball Association is not the U.S. Congress, I know that this is not going to be a model for restitution um, for things on that particular level, but I do think that the rapidity, the completeness, and the bravery that Adam Silver showed in this scenario should serve as a model to the commissioners of the National Football League, Major League Baseball, that when there is a cancer in your organization— you can do everything in your power to cut it out. And that is something that uh, the commissioner of Major League Baseball and the commissioner of the National Football League have both been very slow to do in the past and are currently being slow to do about a number of things, looking at you, Washington Redskins. And I think what this can be is a teaching moment for issues like that. Okay. Let us clamber down off of our soapbox for just a second. Um, And by the time you eventually hear this, you will probably have uh, been well and truly tired of hearing the name Donald Sterling. But nonetheless, we will now move on to a very exciting conversation. Yes, we are very thrilled, ladies and gentlemen, to be joined this evening by Mr. Patrick Lillis, who is the artistic director of something called the Farm Theater, which is a theater collective modeled on the minor league farm system. He'll be joining us in studio in just a moment. Stay tuned. Folks, we're very excited to be joined in the studio tonight by Patrick Lillis, the artistic director of The Farm Theater, an organization devoted to cultivating original theatrical productions that takes its inspiration from Major League Baseball's farm system. Patrick is an award-winning director and playwright and Yankee fan. We're not sure how he got an award for being a Yankee fan, but nothing surprises (laughs) us about the Yankees these days. Patrick, welcome to Baltimoreans. Thank you. Good to be here. We are we are very excited to have uh, a fellow art and baseball nerd in our yes. midst. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So as a jumping off point, why don't you give us a sense of the the what it is about the minor league baseball system that resonates with you as a part of the creative process? Uh, there's a theater company in New York called the Labyrinth Theater Company. Uh, I was on their education committee for 10 years, and then I led it for five years. And one of the things we did is we would tell these early career artists to go out and self-generate work. And then after about five years of, I 
continued to have a relationship with him. I'd show up, I'd mentor and do this. And I realized if you're putting early career pre-professional artists in a room with other people of the same level, they're going to get keep spinning their wheels before they're mm-hmm. actually growing. And it was important to uh, put them with mentors or guides or coaches, to take the baseball metaphor, <laughs> there you go. who could uh, help elevate them to the major leagues. And so it really came from, I'm a huge baseball fan, so it came from that model of wanting to create opportunity to cultivate talent. And so what are some ways that the, the baseball metaphor manifests itself in the farm theater. Do this thing called a bullpen session, which is we bring, we pick a topic for that uh, emerging artist would be interested in. For example, how to navigate a career as a multidisciplinary artist, somebody who does more than one thing, acts, writes, directs, and bring in somebody who, two people who have, you know, maybe five or six years, not somebody famous, not somebody uh, out of reach, but somebody who's in a path that they could be in, invite 20, 25 people in a room. The two people, it's moderated, but two people will be interviewed for half an hour, and then the 25 people can ask questions. And then what's happening that's great is then the room starts to become an open dialogue, and they yeah. start to share resources, and they start to tell their stories. And But it is really sharing the experience and learning from somebody who's, if I were to take baseball, who's been to the show, somebody yeah. who's making a mm-hmm. living, somebody who's doing this, because that's my goal is to get people outside of thinking about just creating art and figuring out how to create it in an, a sustainable way to make a living doing it. Yeah, I'm reminded of uh, looking at the the pictures on, on Rock Cabaco's blog for the Orioles, for example, of Dylan Bundy throwing a bullpen session and Johan Santana is standing next to him with his arms folded, chewing sunflower seeds, being like, don't let that front shoulder fly open too fast, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, it sounds like a that's very it. similar... That's, ex- that's my goal. It's actually is to, it's to have, you know, maybe not the sh- arms crossed, but, <laughs> you know, I'm a Yankee fan. I'm, I, I want to say on air, I grew up in Rochester when we were in the farm system of the Orioles, so I have an affinity for them. But David Robertson, our closer now you know learning how to throw the splitter from mariano so that's that's what you want one of the things though that happens in the baseball farm system is that you start with a very large pool of people and you sort of narrow and you narrow and you narrow until eventually a couple folks get kicked over the top is there any sense of i mean it's it sounds like you're also sort of interested in this sort of collective sharing space do you winnow do you do any of the sort of like winnowing out of people um it's an interesting question. It's funny because the promotion part of it is, I think, trying to recognize talent. And that is the thing, is cult of creating opportunities for them to build a resource for each other. There's classes. They can come and be skill building. But also, when recognizing that somebody is really on the verge of about to make it. I have a program, my, my prized program, is this thing called the College Collaboration uh, which I got three colleges to commission one playwright, an emerging playwright, somebody who's had two productions, uh, ready to go. And then the three colleges, Ashland in Ohio, Center College in Kentucky, and Clark in Massachusetts, cool. will independently produce the play three times, or you know, one time during the academic year. She'll go out to see the play, rewrite between each program. And it's, it's like, wow. so that's giving an up. That's where it's like, oh, recognizing here's somebody who has needs the foundation to kick it over the top Mm -hmm. but she's put herself in that position by having a couple of productions in she's a five-tool talent we see that we see the skills that's right you can see she's got the the tools yeah and um well uh, you know another thing that is sort of uh makes me think of in addition to what alan was saying about the winnowing uh that takes place in the major leagues is 
Um, another thing that happens in major league farm systems is that somebody who was a top prospect in high school maybe gets into a professional environment, finds that their skills don't play at that level, but realizes that they're extremely talented in a different way that they didn't know about and goes on to become a scout or goes on to become a bench coach or a bullpen catcher or uh, contribute in, in various other ways. And it seems like the, the parallel with the arts would again come into play there because you might come to the farm theater thinking you're a director or thinking you're an actor and find out that you're actually a playwright or, or something along those lines. That's exactly it. And it's, um, there's also another thing to go with that metaphor. Cause I started with, uh, I first said, Oh, who am I, who am I cultivating? And I, one of the things I said, oh, is people who don't have that pedigree for success. Like if you're nothing hmm. against these programs, they're fantastic. But if you're in Juilliard's playwriting program, you might not need the farm. You're sort of on a pipeline. Gotcha. You mm -hmm. know, you're doing okay. However, I was thinking that thing you said about people being prodigies or having training or something. And it's also a place, I know somebody who went out to write for television and did not have a good experience and came back and I will just say injured, you know, and, had, <laughs> and had, to, had to go back to the farm to retool their skills right, they a little had to bit rehab because yeah. it was emotionally not sure. healthy. Sure. And so it's like, and I went, oh, that's great because that person has all the pedigree in the world. But I'm like, oh, they need a safe place to feel, you know, they can get their stuff back together. Yeah. Do wow. it. And and the thing you were saying, I just want to also say is right. I mean, I think if somebody's pursuing acting. You know, they were the prodigy. They were the person. They were always getting the part. They were doing whatever. And all of a sudden, it's not happening. But you can empower them by saying, well, you should try writing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know? And then, they're, then they can take control of their career. So uh, I would love to, uh, as a next step, zoom out a little bit. Um, I personally think of baseball as the most theatrical of all sports. <laughs> uh, it's an expansive human drama that unfolds slowly and deliberately Every detail is extraordinarily important to our understanding of the larger story. Does the pace and formality and kind of ponderous nature of baseball have any connection to theater for you? Well, yes, but I want to, first of all, I agree with what you just said. I happen to love baseball because I think it's the perfect sport for many reasons. But one reason is because there's no time limit. Yeah. Hmm. Everybody has a chance. You know, you can you can fight back at any moment. So the drama is, you know, always palpable and there and possible. Also, I'm going to say I think it's the most perfectly designed game. Mm -hmm. huh. You know, when you watch somebody go into the hole, uh, Ripken, Jeter, anybody, and be able to make the throw and get the person in a half an eighth of a step, you're like, oh, that was perfectly designed. This game is meant Mm -hmm. to be played on this field. And I, I teach a class of theater through sports. Uh, oh, cool. Cr created it a while ago when I was at Carleton College to teach. And I said, when we look at doing a play and you're creating the world, you have to figure out, you know, what physically do we need to tell this story? And I think baseball nailed it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's perfect. So that's my example. My other example is we have to agree on the rules. You <laughs> yep. know, like if, if we didn't agree that four balls, you get to go to first for free, there'd be a fight every time, you know? Mm -hmm. And like West Side Story, we agree like, oh, people can sing while they're fighting with knives, you know? <laughs> like we just agreed that that's right. okay. We're creating the universe. <laughs> totally. Yeah. But 
I'm going to get his name wrong, who wrote Bull Durham, because I met him. They did a 25th anniversary screening or 20th anniversary screening at BAM. Well, I definitely don't know who it is. <laughs> Ron Silver, maybe? That's not right. Uh, I'm going to get it wrong, so you can edit it out, or you can come up with it, or somebody can Google it. It'll be great. <laughs> we can all look smart. Right. But the thing that he said that I really liked about democracy in America is he goes, you know, as long as you... The great thing about baseball is as long as you, you, you can argue, as long as you do it civilly, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. you don't kick the dirt on the guy, and you don't curse out his mother or right. say something inappropriate or physically impossible. Yeah. You know, Ron Shelton, you got Ron pretty, Sheldon. I was close. Very close, but when he was saying, it, I thought, Oh yeah, it's, you know, I love, and I, I love baseball for that. And I thought, right, everybody gets their opinion hurt. All right. So one more question and we're going to zoom out even a little bit more maybe. So Sam and I started this podcast uh, because we were at a bar one night when the Orioles were perpetually awful. And we came up with this sort of harebrained scheme that we would use a Kickstarter page to solicit donations from fed up Baltimore Orioles fans to buy back the team from, you know, largely absentee ownership, <coughs> make it into a collective, make Cal Ripken the head of baseball operations, et cetera, et cetera. In light of the news about Donald Sterling, uh, the fact that we hate Peter Angelos, uh, kind of pales <laughs> compared to other bad ownership. But at the same time, this question of sort of consolidated ownership of professional sports is, I think, more relevant than, than ever right now. In the artistic community, We've made Kickstarter into a way of funding things, and we've made the collective into a way of doing uh, art in a pretty cool way. Do you think that this is a trend that's going to continue to make sort of a direct connection between patron and artist? And is it a good thing? Uh, Yeah, I think it is going to continue, and I do think it's a good thing. It's incredibly empowering. I mean, when I launched the Farm Theater, I did it on Indiegogo, and I had a board member who very wisely i was going to slowly casually announce this thing and think that people would care and she said no you're going to have three big programs the college collaboration this other thing you know and you're going to do this and you're going to ask for more money than you're comfortable with sure hmm. and i did twenty thousand dollars and don't really know if i want to talk about money but whatever <laughs> but, but met the, it's not a secret it's on the website we met the goal cool and it has allowed me the freedom to do the bullpen session and the reason and the bullpen session is, f- it's not, it's the nominal cost to the farm, but it's free to anybody who participates, who comes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that idea came out of, well, everybody, what am I going to charge them? 10 bucks. They already donated 10 bucks. And that was more valuable to get the money at the beginning than to sell them a ticket. Uh-huh. Yeah. You uh-huh. know? Totally. And, and so I think it is empowering. And I also think because when you talk about the conglomerate of ownership of sports, yeah, you know, only, only billionaires can talk about buying the Clippers. Right. And... Only people with a ton of money can can do Broadway. Yeah, you know, can decide what is the culture of our country and the highest level and all that stuff. And it's like, well, why don't we empower people and they'll we can choose mm-hmm. at, at you know I, people can give as much money as they want, as little as they want, and you can choose what you want to support. Listen, you put up the Kickstarter, I'm I will contribute. Okay. <laughs> all right, sounds good. <laughs> sounds good. All right. Well, uh, speaking of contributing, everybody should go over to thefarmtheater.org and check out what Patrick is doing there. Uh, It's a really interesting contribution to the ongoing question of how to build a viable artistic community. Um, And we thank you very much for joining us on Baltimore on this evening. This is great. Thank you.
listening to Baltimoreans, the home of the all-weather fan. My name is Sam Dingman. And this is Alan Smith. You know, we both love the Orioles on this program, but as we've mentioned before, possibly at too great length, I personally am not much of a fan of baseball overall. So in an effort to get more into the game outside of Baltimore, we've decided it's time for me to get a National League rooting interest. With any luck, having a second team to follow in an in-depth manner will give me a greater sense of the entirety of what's available. But which team? To decide, we're going to play a National League version of the baseball dating game. So I'm just going to slip on these soundproof headphones here while Sam introduces the team, and then we'll see what we can figure out. All right, sports fans, you know the rules. We've got three eligible teams for Alan to choose from. Bachelor number one is a gritty guy with a heart of gold. He's not always the best mannered nor the most likely to get to the playoffs, but he is the hometown hero, the New York Mets! Bachelor number two is all class, a storied franchise with a dedicated fan base, the St. Louis Cardinals. And bachelor number three loves long romantic walks on the beach and Jimmy Buffett. He's a rags to riches to rags to riches to rags story, the Florida Marlins! All right, let's bring Alan out and let's get started. Team number one. I want a team that will take me out for a nice dinner every so often. Someone with money to spend. What's your idea of a fun evening? Y- yeah, sure, we got money to spend. We, we got lots of money. It's, uh, it, sometimes it's a little imaginary, though. You, kn- you know what I'm saying? Trust it, it'll be there when you need it to be there. Ah, okay, well, that, that's great. Team number one, thank you. Um, National League team number two, how are you this evening? I'm looking for a team that reminds me of all that is great about sports. What do you think is the reason we keep coming back to the park year after year? Yo, I'm the fucking Cardinals, bro. Uh, okay, well, that's interesting. I'm, I'm not totally sure you answered the question or really have any sense of the rules of how this works, but that's okay. Um, team number three. I really care about your heart. Tell me about the ownership structure of your team. Jeez, that's a little awkward. Uh, Can I I answer the first question instead? Uh, Does that mean you're saying you have a lot of money? Yeah. Yeah, we've got an owner who owns a lot of money. And he also owns the team. So there's that. All right, Uh, quite a crew we have here. Back to team number one. You know, I really like underdogs, but I would like to root for a team that has a chance of winning every so often. What can you tell us about our future relationship? Well, you can be sure we got a team for the future. Dono's already up. Syndergaard came over from the Jays, Flores, Rosario, a sick. Plus, Harvey and Wheeler coming back. And this Montero kid is pretty great. I tell you what. I know this team ain't much to look at right now, but you add this core to a team that has right, and you know, bada bip, bada boop, all of a sudden. Okay, thank you. Thank you, team number one. I appreciate that. Uh, I, have a, I have a great sense now of where we would go together. Um, but team number two, I'm a nice guy, and I would like to root for a team that I think is also really... Yo, bro, I'm going to break it down for you. Ten playoff appearances since 2000. Depth. Class. Killer uniforms that we haven't changed since forever. Do I have to keep talking? You know, you sure don't lack for confidence, team number two. But are you around for the long haul? 
I mean, I'm around as long as having you around is making things better for me. The second your skills start to decline, let's just say I got a whole roster to choose from. Deep farm system. You know what I'm saying. I think I do know what you're saying. And I think what you're saying is that you're kind of a douchebag. Yeah. Okay, team number three. You didn't really tell me anything about yourself after that first question. I like a team with a big heart. Take another shot at describing why your heart is the biggest. Okay. Uh, well, if I had to describe my heart to you, it would be a giant electromagnetic pinwheel with a dolphin in fluorescent colors. All right. Uh, I think that's all I really needed. All right, Alan. You've met the contestants now. Who's it going to be? Will it be bachelor number one? Who? I, look, I'm just going to stop you right there, man. I'm not picking any of these teams. All this has done is further convince me that the National League is bullshit. But did I mention the National League has no designated hitter? What history? What purity? Listen, right now, the designated hitter is pretty much all that we have going for us over on the Orioles. Take that away. I get worried. Well, that's our show for tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Stay tuned for a very special Tampa Bay Rays edition of everyone's favorite game show, The Price is Right! That's... That's just awful. Get out of the studio, sir. But we did mention last week that we'd gotten a strange package which contained a beat-up cassette tape with a series of odd squeaks, howls, and other animal noises. After running that tape through a series of dampers and other complex audio tools, we were able to discern that it was the following message from loyal listener Don Petrie. Alan Smith, Don Petrie, faithful podcast listener, listening to last week's show. Uh, Jeff Passan is the writer for Yahoo Sports, not Passan. Uh, last name is pronounced Passon. That's all. Keep up the good work. See ya. Which means that not only were we totally wrong about how to pronounce Passon's name, but that intern Scott Diego was somehow able to mail us a recording of a listener letting us know of a mistake from before that episode was recorded. Man, that is just creepy, Scotty. But we've come to expect that from the young scamp. Ladies and gentlemen, stay, stay safe out there, buddy. Stay safe. <laughs> our show is written and produced by Sam Dingman and Alan Smith, and our guest tonight was Patrick Lillis. Make sure to check out thefarmtheater.org for more information about his work. We featured the music of Marshall York, Town Hall, Weather Report, Fish, and the Black Crows, and you can find more of our lunatic ramblings in the episode archives at our website, bemorons.com, in iTunes, where you also have the very appealing option of leaving us a favorable review, or on Twitter at Be Morons. Thanks also to our friend and repeated guest, Charlie Hoppus, for his uh, drop-in with us today to talk about Mr. Sterling. Uh, and do check out Charlie at Orioles Spastics on the Baltimore Sports Report Network. So, Sam, what do you call Henry Rudy after he's given up on his career in baseball and gone to enlist in the Army as a path to becoming an American citizen? You would call him Henry the New Recruitia. And good evening. Stop kicking my Well, I told you so, now it's time to go Got to 
Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at baltimoresportsreport.com.